Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for attending our online session today on balancing liberty and public safety during a pandemic. My name is Kevin Navratel, and I am a political science professor and the Democracy Commitment Coordinator at Moraine Valley. As Democracy Commitment Coordinator, I help promote civic education opportunities on our campus. A longstanding debate across nearly all societies is the scope of governmental power adjudicating the proper balance between protecting personal freedom and protecting the public. In light of a recent executive order from Illinois Governor Pritzker that requires indoor mask mandates and required vaccines or weekly COVID tests for medical workers, educators, and college students, we thought it was an ideal time to grapple with these two major principles of the U.S. political system, freedom and protecting the public. Maintain, maintaining civil liberties and protecting the public can be a zero-sum game and difficult to balance. I'm very pleased to be joined by my colleagues, historian Mary Fafleese Dunkel, Josh Fulton, Jim McIntyre, and political science professor Darren Schreck. I really appreciate that they volunteered their time this early in the semester. We, we just um, started discussing having this event within the last two weeks. So um, I, I really appreciate all of you uh, agreeing to participate in this with such short notice. So to start us off, we thought it would be good to have uh, Dr. Shrek uh, start us off on American political ideologies and how that might fit in with um, understanding the proper balance between liberty and safety. Well, thank you for having me, Kevin. And it's good to see Mary, Jim, and Josh as well. And thank you all for attending. Um, uh, the way I wanted to start was to give a perspective of what the country was like after 9-11 in 2001. Uh, when 9-11 hit, and for many of the people who might be watching this, you might not have been born at the time. But when 9-11 hit and the days that ensued that came after 9-11, there was a sense of this togetherness and rallying around uh, the cause or rallying around the country, even rallying around our government. And I found that there was a big difference between 2001 and what we see today. Uh, in 2001, there wasn't a Facebook, there wasn't a social media presence. So uh, you basically had blogs and websites of where people had opinions about government or their political leaders, and it wasn't a 24-7, minute-by-minute type of, uh, of discussion that we see today. But after 9-11, soon after, I should say, George, H, excuse me, George W. Bush's approval ratings, according to Gallup, was at 86%. The week after, so this was about September 15th, a week after that, his approval rating jumped, according to Gallup, to 90%. That was the highest approval rating of any president since Harry Truman after World War II, where his approval rating was 87% in 1945. By 2008, however, George W. Bush's approval rating dropped all the way down to somewhere between 25 and 30 percent. 
uh, halfway through his presidency, his approval rating was about 50%. So there was this gradual decline of approval throughout the years to the point where it essentially bottomed out and it made it very easy for the Democrats to win the White House uh, in 2008. Joe Biden's highest point of approval has been 57%, and that was towards the beginning of his first term. Uh, but recently, if you look at the polls, according to one poll, the civics poll, which does it over time, uh, his approval rating is now at 42%, and uh, his disapproval rating is at 50%. You could say some of that has to do with Afghanistan and not necessarily about the vaccine. In terms of approval on the coronavirus and how it's been handled, Real Clear Politics has an average of 52% where the public approves of how things have been handled. However, what we see today in terms of our opposition or in terms of the opposing sides is that both sides are very, very entrenched in what they believe. In 2001, there was this coming together and people had to ask themselves questions about terrorism since we never really saw terrorism in this country. There was discussion about, about the Muslim faith and what Islam was all about and trying to understand the, the impact of religion on society. And Democrats and Republicans had discussions about it. Both liberals and conservatives had discussions about what was going on in this country. For years, we had only seen it in the Middle East, or we would see it with the uh, Irish Republican Army, and uh, it, was, it was over there. It wasn't here. But today, we have something, public health, that the entire citizenry can rally behind. You can talk about, let's say, the polio vaccine in the 40s and 50s, and hearing people say, well, I didn't really have, you know, we just got in line, we got a sugar cube, and we were told this is the way it was going to be, and we just got it. Uh, I, I hear anecdotally from people who are of that age that if we had the same type of arguments today, back then, we'd probably still have polio uh, in terms of the way people don't want to be vaccinated. So what has happened now is that this issue of vaccinations has become a, a a delineation, a, a line in the sand type of discussion between Democrats and Republicans, where you would see on one side that the Democrats, for the most part, are pro-vaccination. And the way politics works is that if one side takes this position, it always seems like the other side has to take the opposing position. So instead of having this rallying around the cause, we have it where we have one side saying this is A, and the other side says this is B. In politics, we have those who are in power, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, constantly chasing after the car. They're like dogs who run after the car and they never get to it. You see that they're busy at getting to the car, but what happens when they do get to the car? Their, their argument, their barking stops. So as long as the barking can continue, at least with the anti-vaccination side, the Republican Party recognizes they need those people in their camp. Their voting block is getting older and older. 
they used to have, let's say, a fringe group of people. Both parties have fringe groups of people. The Democrats have always been good at telling the really hard progressive left, okay, we'll, we'll take your votes on election day and you're going to just be quiet. The Republicans used to have that as well. They would have like a fringe type of vocal minority in the party and that vocal minority is now useful for fundraising. You see that vocal minority in social media who are attempting to have some sort of political power. And the Republican Party recognizes that they need those people in order to stay a viable party in this country. So in 2001, you had both parties understanding that there is some kind of common cause that's out there. And today, one party sees that there is a common cause and the other party sees, well, if you're going to take the common cause, we're going to take the uncommon route then and say that, well, there's another side to this. And we also see it not only in our national politics, but we see it in our local politics, the messaging. Uh, just recently, a local mayor in our community uh, said that they would not enforce any masking rules in, uh, in their town. And then during the, uh, the town debate or town discussion, the mayor used the word chemicals as defining vaccines when saying people have questions about putting chemicals in their bodies. So we see that the messaging for most people, they'll understand there are chemicals in vaccines and that vaccines have some kind of medical properties to it, chemical properties to it. But using the word chemicals kind of divides people as well by saying that, well, this could be for that element of, of voters that are out there who have questions about vaccines that chemicals could be bad for the person's body. And you have one political party that's championing that. So you have these two sides that are out there about something that could be simply dealt with if everybody just came together. Thank you very much, Darren. And uh, I know that you're, you're not able to attend the, the whole session due to a previous uh, conflict. So um, feel free to uh, drop out as you need to. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, and, and, you know, just to kind of transition from, from uh, Darren to um, the historians, um, could you think of uh, previous examples of, of either mask mandates or vaccine requirements or other significant um, measures by the government to help protect public safety? There's, there's a long sort of history of community division over the issue of public health. Um, even before you have governments that are strong enough to, to drill down to that level, I found an example preparing for this um, early 18th century uh, Massachusetts, uh, Dr. Zabadil Boylston, Boylston sorry, inoculated uh, about 246 people in his community uh, against smallpox and five of those people died and it should be made clear that the inoculation used live bacilli that's the initial process they used at any rate and so a lot of people uh, vilified the doctor essentially tried to run him out of town until a few years later uh, when a smallpox ep epidemic hit the community and killed one out of every seven people in it 
of the survivors, the 241 he had inoculated were, were survived this epidemic, this outbreak. So it, again, it's always sort of this tension in the community. Um, and, and moving forward uh, to when the government can take an active role and did take an active role and we've and i'm sure my colleagues uh, know much more about this than i i'm not more of, i'm not much of a modern americanist um but there's a movement in the late 19th century really against smallpox nationally and many states had mandates uh, on smallpox vaccination uh, there were also people who rejected smallpox vaccination and there are a number of supreme court cases uh, one of the ones that we were discussing a little bit just before we started was uh, jacobson versus massachusetts um, which i um, i can handle or if one of my colleagues would like to jump in no okay um, so essentially uh, mr jacobson was a swedish immigrant who had actually been vaccinated in Sweden, but the process had gone awry and, and he really suffered as a result of this. And, and again, it brings up this other question that, or this other sort of related issue, nothing is perfect, right? Like no vaccination, no drug, no surgical procedure. That's, you know, which leads to a lot of litigation and in turn, a lot of legislation as time goes on. Uh, and that's maybe a side topic that we can circle back to. At any rate, um, he rejected his son's vaccination in Massachusetts, where the state was mandating you must be vaccinated against smallpox to attend public schools. The case went to the Supreme Court um, in a 7-2 ruling. Uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan wrote as part of the majority opinion, in every well-ordered society charged with the duty of conserving the safety of its members, the rights of individual the rights of individuals in respect to his liberty may, at times, under the pressure of great dangers, be subjected to restraint to be enforced by reasonable regulations as the safety of the public demands, which I think goes back on our colleague uh, Professor Schreck's commentary about these tensions within the body politic. Um, Harlan went on to state that real liberty for all could not exist under the operation of a principle which recognizes the right of each individual person to use his own liberty, whether in respect of his person or his property, regardless of the injury that may be done to others. And, and so I think we see a lot of that in the, the argument that refusal to mask, refusal to get the vaccination, well, it's my personal choice, which is, is a narrow view as opposed to like, what what, what a choice what effect will that choice have on the larger community that you interact with? Thank you, Jim. Uh, Josh, Josh, do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first? Go ahead, Mary. That's okay. Sure. Okay. Um, thank you. And thanks, Kevin, for bringing us all back together again. I think we all enjoy one another's company. And, and uh, as we said, we put the band back together yet again. Um, I think if the question is to kind of bounce off of, of uh, Professor McIntyre and Professor Shrek, whether or not the, whether it's local, state, or federal, has the authority to mandate such, thing as, such things as vaccines or particular behavior to elicit particular behavior from people in times of crisis, 
I'd argue that the, uh, the answer is overwhelmingly yes. Uh, we've seen it happen multiple times, whether it's at the local authority, um, whether it's kids being required to have vaccinations to, to attend school, which I think that's we're all used to, right? Um, federal authority, you know, you go, join the military, you're just inoculated, bam, 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 one vaccine after the other. Um, and, and looking at it in, through different times in history, even mandates during times of crises like World War I, World War II, the Civil War, where an extra burden was, was placed on, on us as Americans, but we were basically, it was enforced by, by federal authorities. Uh, I came across a couple of, of examples at the local level and um, at the state and the federal level. So looking at the local level, um, one of the examples I thought was kind of interesting was how um, the Black Hawk War in Illinois um, required troops kind of passing through the city of Chicago to get to where the fighting was in, in more um, northwestern uh, Illinois and lower level Wisconsin. And as the men kind of passed through Chicago, they brought cholera with them. Um, this, now the city yet had not been yet officially incorporated, so we're still kind of operating under like the old Fort Dearborn, right? But there was still men in the city of Chicago were required to help with the cleanup of alleyways and streets, and there was a, a, a fine if you did not comply. Not comply. So non-compliance was fined. I think it was like seventy-five cents or a dollar or something like that if you would not comply with it. So there's a history even before Chicago was yet incorporated of the, of the idea that they needed to that, they, that people needed to comply in at a time of, of um, epidemics. Um, same thing that after after the uh, fire burned down the city of Chicago in 1871, and you had this sort of massive mass amount of and I think we don't talk about it as much the amount of refugees fire refugees that occurred people who were lacking housing and who needed help. Um, the Chicago Relief and Aid Society was providing relief to those people, and the city of Chicago required that people get a smallpox inoculation before they be given aid. So that was required. So if you're looking at stuff like that about actual inoculations, or if you're looking at at times in World War One and World War Two, when people were required to to ration what they ate, ration what they used, and again we're all familiar with this, but you know when Darren was talking before about the idea of unity. Um, after 9-11, uh, and I was just thinking about, again, how would we would we be able to fight such a war today? Now, granted, I know that circumstances are so different than before, right? We haven't fought wars, wars of that nature since World War II, but this idea whether or not people resisted it or not, and there were black markets that, that undermined these things, but people rationed rubber, people rationed gasoline, people, they were forced to. There wasn't a choice, you were forced to. You still had to buy it, but you had to have a ration card in order to get your meat or to get your sugar or whatever. Um, I actually know personally that my own grandfather who owned an ice cream and candy store uh, during the depression, it opened in 1931. Uh, he operated on the black market during World War II to get his sugar because he wanted to keep his business going. So we know people kind of evaded it, but for the most part, they were still required to comply with it. Um, during the influenza epidemic, and Jim, I forgot to talk to you about this. I was, I was reading about in Chicago, but um, how soldiers at, at Great Lakes at the Naval Academy were isolated and quarantined and not given leave to be able to be able to go out on, on their quote liberty leave, right, to leave because because of, of the epidemic. Um, so is that any different from uh, the idea of even whether we're talking about people having to ration during the war, people kind of having to comply for the public good or for public safety? Um, personally, I don't see much of a difference in that. Um, and it's interesting to look at even what was going on here in Chicago. I came across something that made me laugh, um, the idea that um, people who were in Chicago who were, quote, persistently sneezing and coughing, were uh, Chicago police were mandated to stop them and politely ask them, please, please, you know, <laughs> wear a handkerchief 
to to keep yourself from doing that. But if you didn't, and they were, they proved to be difficult, uh, the Chicago police were given authority to arrest them. And then it, it, as the pandemic, the influenza, Spanish influenza of 1918 got worse, things progressed of closing down movie theaters and, and dance halls and, and things of that nature. And the police were given the authority to, to arrest as needed uh, to get people to comply. So I think that, the, I mean, there is a, a lot of precedent whether we're looking at these different time periods of the authorities, whether again, whether it's local, state or federal being given that authority in a time of crisis or in a time of need to mandate such things. And it seems, I would argue that overall, that, that ebb and that flow as the, as the pendulum swings the other way, that things begin to calm down and then kind of normalcy returns. So I thought that's why I'd start with from there and I'll, I'll turn it over to Josh. Thank you, Mary. From here. Thank, thank, thank you, you, Mary. Um, you know, listening to uh, everyone here, you know, kind of talk a bit, uh, Professor Shrek, about the, uh, you know, sort of the, the polling and the post 9-11 and, uh, you know, Jim talking about uh, the, the smallpox epidemic and, and Mary talking about sort of the role of the, the state in the, the 20th century has me thinking about, you know, kind of a, a couple of things. And when I was thinking about it and, and researching sort of before this, you know, I was centering on sort of one or two two items. Uh, one is partly that building on what what Mary was saying, what you were saying about the kind of the, the role of the state and then and then also about immigration uh, as well uh, you know for for a couple of reasons, right So um, you know I'm, I'm working currently on a, a dissertation having to do with the state government in Illinois during World War one. Volunteerism of that the and well, he warned us <laughs> this yeah. might happen. Oh Josh no! Oh no! Us You're caught now, the, Josh. He's relying on the internet connection at uh, yeah. our campus, so um, bear with us here with the. Video. Yeah, it's still not. Oh no. Yeah, you're going in and out, Josh. Okay. You tried now to you're in. your video <laughs> to just do audio. I can I can try to stop the video. Yeah, sure. Here we go. Okay, can folks hear me? Yes. Okay, good. We'll go with that. Uh so the, the two things that I, I was thinking about uh, was immigration and then uh, also the concepts of volunteerism and pa public patriotism as it surrounds World War I. Uh, so, you know, what Mary was saying about the idea that the, the state sort of, you know, asked individuals or asked the public to, you know, exhibit a form of public sort of performative behavior, you know, I think is a really important element for us, right? So there's this difference between World War One and World War Two, of, you know, the state will put something out there that an existential threat exists and will state to the public that they voluntarily expect compliance, that they expect Americans to, in a sense, do their duty, right? Now, this is, of course, the World War One era, so a lot of this is sort of, well, we don't like labor radicals, we don't like this, that, or the other, 
but it can also be applied in some ways, you know, in aspects of, you know, public health crises sort of that, that existed, this idea of, you know, you're expected to, you know, kind of meld this public behavior with, with patriotism, right? So the, this is the idea that the state gets to define and construct the, the essence of what a patriotic act is. And so compliance then with a vaccine mandate, compliance with a mask mandate, compliance with a distancing mandate, you know, the idea of performance of those is not necessarily just for public health's sake, but that public health is a public good and that one is engaging in a form of patriotic labor by essentially masking up and stepping away from people, right? You know, sort of that's, that's the idea. And the, the other element, or one of the other elements that I was thinking about here is, is particularly immigration uh, and the idea of who is the state targeting, right? Or, or when we're, we're talking about public health, who are we looking at as a threat to the health of the public? And especially in the second half of the 19th century and the first decades of the 20th century, it's worth mentioning that immigrants from particular communities, you know, were targeted as being uh, representatives or agents of uh, the spreading of disease uh, throughout the United States, right? Uh, now, of course, certainly uh, individuals from China and others uh, are going to be particularly targeted. The racialization and eugenical era of the early 20th century, of course, speaks a lot to this. But, you know, the creation of the U.S. immigration system in the early 20th century, the idea that immigration agents at places like Ellis Island or Angel Island are looking for trachoma and Favis because they think that these are these communicable diseases that the, you know, that immigrant communities are bringing in, right? I mean, the formation of U.S. public health agencies at the, that time anyway is a reflection of this concern uh, that the public has supposedly over these immigrant communities and their ability uh, necessarily to spread disease. And it's one of the things that I find so interestingly juxtaposed with the mid-20th century and concerns over polio, right? Particularly concerns over polio, right? Because, you know, as, as, as Mary and Jim and others know, right, the arc of the 19th century, if we're looking at at greater public health crises can be things like cholera uh, and typhoid and, you know, these, the, these kinds of things, right? So the assumption often was this idea that, you know, these kinds of outbreaks are going to happen in, in uh, impoverished communities, immigrant communities, and of course the racialization of the late 19th century obviously, you know, often placed the blame there and not necessarily on germ theory and, you know, kind of an understanding of, of, of that. And, and polio then, you know, there's an initial outbreak in 1916, I believe it was, in New York, right? And this was one of the things that had baffled folks, the idea of, oh my, it's, it's affecting upper class people that, that who are of certain races. That's, that's not allowed to happen. Why is that happening, right? Uh, of, you know, that's, that's not supposed to happen. Uh, and then, you know, you do end up seeing this broader public campaign, uh, partly through the March of Dimes, strongly supported by President Roosevelt, and then eventually the vaccine embrace in the mid-1950s, partly due to the idea that you have celebrity buy-in, 
I mean, it is worth noting when Elvis gets his vaccine on television, right? That was that was huge, right? That was incredibly significant. Uh, so those are some of the things that I was thinking about. Thanks, Josh. And um, I wanted to remind um, we have a, um, attendees in the audience uh, virtually. And we, we have a chat um, function where you can type in questions or comments via the chat. Um, so please feel free to do that. Um, and we'll take your comments and questions as we can. Um, one of the questions, I, I really learned a lot from each of your uh, brief presentations and, and there's a lot that I'd like to follow up on. Um, just one that came to mind, uh, the, some of the, the governors recently of Texas, Florida, South Dakota, and others um, have, have actually um, banned uh, mask mandates in schools um, and banned you know, uh, vaccine mandates. Is, is that new uh, or is that something you know, that's replaying from previous historical periods um, that you've covered? Kevin, I don't, I'm sorry not to address that question. There is a, a question on the chat, though. Did you see it? Just to I make sure. That. Yeah, there's a question on there. I just wanted to throw that out so there before a we. A Q&A and then there's a chat. So I, I missed the one in the chat. Or maybe it's in the Q&A. I'm sorry. It's about, uh, do you see it? Okay. No, I don't. It's a... Um, Somebody wrote, uh, I remember there's a controversy about only essential workers going out in public to and from work. I got, he wrote papers from my employer to prove employment if I were to be caught traveling. Obviously this is unconstitutional, but could it get to that point? Um, so I guess this, the, the person is asking whether or not it's, it's saying it's unconstitutional to have to have papers uh, proving employment to be out and about, um, but could it get to that point? Um, the closest parallel I can think of would be like the ration cards during World War II for gasoline consumption. And that was deemed as perfectly constitutional. I mean, um, the, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, no, the two examples that I would think of uh, immediately are we're required to have our driver's licenses when we go out driving. Uh, you know, there's, there's that. Uh, and then... Um, in, in terms of historical uh, examples, the, the one thing that I can think of was, uh, at least during World War I, the federal government supported local authorities conducting what they called slacker raids, uh, where the idea was uh, men were required to register for the draft and were required to uh, keep their draft cards on them at all times uh, as, as, a, as sort of a demonstration of of their patriotism um, but you know to the the broader point about you know is there a constitutional basis uh, for you know or, or of a reasonable accommodation for folks being asked to carry things around I mean I think generally the answer is yes another question too Kevin did you see the other question I did um... Sorry, I mean, <laughs> I apologize. Because the, the Q&A, I still don't see the first question. So just uh, heads up to the attendees. Um, if you could use the chat function, I think it's a little bit easier for me to use on WebEx. 
Um, but hopefully, if, if, if not, one of the other panelists can, can hopefully catch the question. But the question that I just noticed was, um, why is there such a difference between the states? One takes mandates very seriously and others is banning mandates. Are we going to get one mandate or law for all states? It's a great question. And there's, a, there's another question there too uh, from someone saying, when you have the chance, do you believe it's necessary to have a vaccine mandate for sports clubs or even to attend schools? Are those, are there two, cause I don't see the other one, but maybe are we, I wonder if some of us are getting, yeah, are I you guys seeing that I one too, it. Josh or Jim? I, I see the one you, you just read, Mary, yes. How about this? Why don't we just take like we would in, in person? We can only do one question at a time. I know it's- yeah. Sorry, I just wanted, well, <laughs> sorry, Kevin. Uh, it's tough to have these coming in and be thinking about answering questions. So let's, let's I'll try to do the best I can to filter them. Um, so starting with the audience members before mine, um, let's start with that one about differences between states. So the question really about, you know, Florida, Texas, South Dakota, and others going one direction of, of effectively banning uh, mask and vaccine mandates, whereas other states like Illinois are instituting uh, mask, indoor mask uh, policies and uh, requiring medical and, and educators to, um, to, to be vaccinated or do weekly tests. I can speak to that unless somebody else wants to. Go ahead, go ahead, okay. I, can, I can jump in after. Okay, sure, sure, sure. You know, part of it, I think, would speak to uh, the, you know, era of the influenza pandemic and the era of uh, localized mandates, you know, sort of at that particular time. And the idea of, you know, have we seen this and will we get a federal response? I mean, historically, it's one of the biggest ones that I can think of, and largely there too. You know, that was the idea that you had each state and each community community often handling it locally, right? You know, out in, uh, what was it, Mary, San Francisco or Seattle, where you had the flying squadron of uh, police that were enforcing, uh, you know, sir, you know, mass mandates and sort of some of this. And, um, you know, I've often... Uh, often wondered if a, would there be a Netflix, uh, you know, sort of uh, show there of the flying flu squadron from 1918. Uh, but, you know, you know, part of that has to do with how powerful federal authority exists at an individual time. But much like in 1918, uh, you know, we are clearly living through the idea of certain states that are seeking, you know, to have uh, a different outlook. We just lost Josh here momentarily. Yeah. Uh, Mary or Jim, did you want to chime in? Yeah, sure. I would. I would. Just, if the question is about why are states acting differently, I would just argue it's because they have the power to do so. Um, you know, and, um, the notion that that Florida and and Texas and South Dakota, um, their constituents tend to be their their governor in, in one particular way and again that's not everybody but that tends to be the the seems to be the overall trend um they're handling it their way because that's that's what's pleasing their constituents and i'd also argue that there's the element of these particular governors who are looking to also aspire to the presidency as well at least particularly um uh, governor DeSantis of florida because you also have the governor of west virginia whose name escapes me i forgot his name i think it starts with a c um who's a republican pardon me is it caputo 
It doesn't matter. I, yeah, I can't remember. It might be. Um, but who has been very vocal about not, well, not necessarily mandating vaccines. He's been very vocal about just taking it. It's common sense and very much pushing it as, as common sense. So while he hasn't gone so far as to mandate it, he is, he is, is highly encouraging people to do so. Um, it, it should also be noted that he's got one of the lower um, amounts of, of uh, vaccination rates in the country, too. Um, but I would just argue that's simply how, how each governor is, is choosing to do this. And, and from the beginning of the pandemic, there wasn't a it wasn't there wasn't there was zero um, government, federal government response because there was. But it seemed to be very devolved. The, the seemed to be that it was up to the state to kind of handle it their own way. And there wasn't a coherent um, uh, uh, federal approach. So I'd argue that's that's probably why it's things are kind of progressing as they are. It seems like there's a, a, a little bit of a difference and a little bit more federal um, cohesion now. But I'd also say that it's it, it's it's still there is this kind of fear that we're all going to push it so far yeah. um, because of the trepidation that so many people have regarding vaccines. And I think that also goes back to the, the question of social media that Darren brought up earlier um, and, and the conspiracy theories that people are willing to to believe. People in my own circle who believe that, uh, you know, that the vaccine is going to put a chip in their arm and follow them around, but forgetting that they're carrying a phone around in their hand and that's doing that for them. <laughs> Nobody needs a chip in your arm. <laughs> you know, your phone's doing it for them. And actually, that's something that the governor of West Virginia has also said very publicly, too. So, Kevin, you probably have. Uh, yeah, I would just add that. I mean, that's the essence of federalism, which really the Tenth Amendment, which is basically saying, Tenth Amendment to the Constitution is basically saying that all the power, you know, whatever powers haven't been expressly delegated to the national government are reserved to the states. And it's really interpreted as states have police powers, which really is getting at the ability to regulate the health, safety, and morals within their own internal borders of their states. And we have states that um, we often refer to as red and blue states, states that red are, are, are more conservative, vote Republican, and states that are blue, are more Democrat, that vote Democratic. Um, and there's just significant differences of, of the policies that these states either find popular with their constituents of what their citizens want. Um, and um, so they've, they've gone their own way. So there are a lot of um, questions. There's a couple of questions getting at, could there be a one size fits all national approach? And um, that we, you know, so far it's been very piecemeal and, and um, US troops. And, and I know uh, President Biden is speaking today about uh, uh, this afternoon, it looks like maybe federal contractors who work in the executive department um, but w would any of you like to um, address the idea of kind of a one-size national government position on requiring uh, vaccine mandates? And I mean, I I guess I I still want to connect a few dots here when I ask that. I mean, we don't want to compare apples to oranges. But after 9-11, uh, you know, we have some students who weren't born yet when this happened and um, in 2001. You, but most people realized 3,000 people died. It was a very horrific and scary event. Um, and, I, and I can speak personally. You, you really just didn't know if that when it was going to end. It seemed like um, there was multiple buildings that were attacked and there was definitely an air of uncertainty. Um, but that moment... Um, 
and, and I wanted to just cite from, from Pew Research in uh, 2001, there was a survey that 55% of Americans were willing to trade in um, uh, civil liberties for more security. But mask man, uh, vaccine mandates are even more popular. Uh, you know, about two thirds of Americans are supportive of a, a nationwide vaccine mandate. And so I guess what I'd like to do is kind of just pose to the to the panelists and to the audiences, is it is it lack of the national government, whether it was President Trump or now President Biden, lacking the impetus to basically be more bold? I mean, I, I, I view it like after 9-11, President Bush was really viewed kind of a in this role of the state to get very aggressive, you know, not only going to Afghanistan, but ultimately Iraq. I think there was an argument that he, or at least a motivation he had that he needed to expand this war on terror to potential threats in, and ultimately these lasted two decades. And we completely redid the way we did airport security. We created Homeland security. The list goes on and on. And for the most part, U S Patriot act, Americans were willing to do this. Um, so I'm just wondering why maybe presidents haven't been as forceful of making that case based on, I think it was Josh that said existential threats and mm -hmm. facing the country. That's the longest question yeah. ever, but. Um, <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking before, because you know, just not only talking about the mandates for the vaccines, but even just again, in times of, of overall crisis, when Lincoln suspended habeas corpus during the civil war, uh, and there was a lot of pushback and a lot of dissent. You know, and for those, so just to kind of give some context, um, uh, Lincoln was facing some kind of pushback and, and in some cases openly outright rebellion from the state of Maryland uh, that was vital to the war. It was a border state and it's, it, was, it was vital that the rail lines be open. And so he suspended habeas corpus. So the idea that a person has the right to appear in court to hear the charges brought against them and they can't just be thrown unilaterally into prison without hearing those charges produced the body, right? So um, by suspending habeas corpus and then also extending that further to other Americans, there was a lot of pushback as to whether or not he violated his, his um, um, not his oath, but whether or not he, he was like overextending himself at his powers. And he basically said, for the most part, uh, yeah, but what are you going to do about it? Um, you know, the Constitution gives Congress the right during a time of rebellion to suspend habeas corpus in time of rebellion. And he said that basically, what is the difference between them doing it versus me doing it? Um, and, um, you know, in history has judged him rather kindly. But history also, again, President Lincoln was also dealing with um, a media and social media outlets that are, are constantly critiquing every single little thing that's done. And this was done at a time where, you know, the Chicago Tribune was shut down during the Civil War and, and not being allowed to, to publicize. So um, I think that part of it is that um, I think that one of the reasons why, if you're asking why, let's say Trump or Biden, um, or Biden in particular, is not is not pushing that way, I'd say it's because of the of this kind of this fear of the pushback that, that they're going to get, and the fact that we've had so much um, aggression and you know the January 6th rebellion as well, how on edge we are as a country, and is that going to provoke a greater response and kind of escalate things further? So I think that Biden in particular is kind of relying upon the goodwill of the states. And, and let's be honest, all the states require, public schools require vaccinations. One of the questions on here is about, um, about that, that's kind of answered the question why, why there isn't a federal government mandated vaccine. But 
yeah, on the state level, schools are, but that's part of, the, again, the federalist system that schools are able to make those decisions for themselves on that level. Um, and so I think that the presidents are kind of requiring, are, are relying on, on these states to do these things. And, and I think they're, they are afraid. Um, I think there's a, a fear of what the pushback will be from states should they, should they just do a, an open federal uh, vaccine mandate across the board without exceptions. And I was going to chime in and add on to what you were saying, Mary, and, and to address part of your question, Kevin, I think since since 9-11, we've also seen the rise initially of the Tea Party that hold held the federal government and every, all of its powers in great suspicion. So I think that kind of adds to the problem of trying to do a national mandate because it, it kind of feeds that segment of society, which has been quite vocal on social media and you know, has has really kind of tried to undermine the legitimacy in many ways of any kind of federal programs. So I think that also, you know, creates a sort of an, an environment of tread softly on the part of the, the federal government. Josh, I know you got cut off earlier, so feel free to catch up or, um, you know, leave uh, where you left off earlier um, with, in, in your discussion. Oh, okay. Can can folks hear me? Okay. Oh, good. That's delightful. Um, well, I, you know, listening to to what both of you were saying, you know, the thing that is I'm finding interesting is really debates over federalism and the role of federal authority uh, and real concerns over it. And you know, obviously, the political scientists here could speak more to the transformation of America's party states in, since the 1950s with the rise of conservatism uh, and really how that's affected how we think about the role of the state, particularly as it relates to these kinds of situations. And I would just echo Mary's concerns in thinking about it that way. I, I think um, all, all three of you, the, the, I think that a great case was was made of the blowback uh, and pushback that would occur if there was a national mandate. And I think Jim, you're right about the Tea Party and the suspicion that has grown. You know, and I think Darren mentioned from the beginning the lack of trust um, to connect these dots. Uh, I just wanted to point out to Mary uh, with the um, suspending rid of habeas corpus and and all the really uh, aggressive, I guess is I don't know the best word. Um, almost extra constitutional steps that um, Lincoln made, but yet historically he's viewed as one of the best, if not the best president of all times. And, and that I think that that's a, 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 a commonality we see with, with some of the presidents who are regarded as the best, you know, the top three or five of all time is that they acted boldly in times of crises and really kind of pushed the boundaries of what the constitution allowed um, in these times, uh, times of threats. Um, so, uh, a couple of other, uh, questions that have come in through, um, in the chat. I, I know one was about, um, schools and, um, I'm sorry, with sports and whether sports, sports teams and, um, clubs should have vaccine mandates. Um, well, I'd turn it over to the, to the panelists first. Uh, I'm not a sports person, but I, I, so I, 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 even though I'm jumping in right away, I'm not, I'm, I can't talk about sports themselves, but they're already doing it. The clubs themselves are already all doing that because it's about money. And they're actually, is it, isn't it the NBA and the NFL? Are they both authorizing um, 
fines if you if you basically are um, wasn't just an NFL player who was just ejected um, for not uh, not getting a vaccine. But essentially, that played a role uh, of not following COVID protocol. But yeah, the and they're already doing it basically. Effectively, run a bubble for two years um, and, and really stringent policies. I, I don't know. I, I know one of my classes. I have a, a basketball player for 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 the college, and and I, I think the question could also be for just you know colleges and for for student clubs. I think you know private organizations like the NBA it might be one thing, but what about? Um, you know, high schools or colleges that are requiring vaccines for their for their for student athletes or for student clubs. Anyone else want to jump in? Sorry, I don't want to keep dominating the. I, I would say, they already require a number of vaccines anyway. I mean, and you know, building off of Jim's emphasis on Jacobson versus Massachusetts, of we've had since 1905 a legal precedence for the use or broad acceptability of vaccines as a, a reasonable expectation of one's admittance into the public sphere that we've constructed, uh, that, that that's okay. Uh, and I don't know if folks mentioned it earlier when I, when I dropped out, I know that at the beginning I was talking about immigration, you know, if we, you know, take that away just from schools, but more to the idea of, of modern discussions or debates over immigration, you know, current U.S. immigration policy states that the United States requires for foreign nationals who wish to become immigrants to the U.S. to have already had at least nine separate vaccinations. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that there is a broad acceptance of uh, mandate, you know, for this either way. It's just this particular vaccine itself has become incredibly politicized. Yeah, I, I, um, I wanted to follow up. Sorry, I'm reading the chat and I'm trying to think through previous questions simultaneously. But one of the points that you raised earlier, Josh, about the volunteerism uh, and I, I may have been married too with rubber and tin drives and the public good. Um, I'm just, I've, I've read online some people who, um, former military people who have, have advocated that this taking the vaccine is not being, you know, being a good citizen doesn't mean you should have to take the vaccine. And, and I, I just wonder if it's a huge, it seems to me that it could be a huge kind of difference generationally from this threat, um, from previous threats where, you know, it, it seemed like there was so much more willingness amongst the public to make strong sacrifices for the greater good. And um, I know that this pandemic is now, you know, 18 months or longer, and it's been difficult for many people, but I'm just wondering if it, or, or questioning whether we don't have that same resolve or lack, lack of unity, lack of national purpose that perhaps we once did, or is that looking back too nostalgically? I, I think, yeah, what what I find interesting in kind of how you're phrasing this is when you said that, uh, you know, a, a veteran, I think it was, um, you know, the question you know, that is, is it, do you have to, you know, have a vaccine or to be a, be a good citizen? Well, who gets to decide that, right? That's really what the question is here, right? Uh, of, 
is it the state that gets to decide what it means to be a good citizen? Is it this guy uh, who gets to, or, or, or woman or whoever, whoever, you know, who gets to decide what it means to be a good citizen, right? Often when private actors are making uh, protestations about what it means to be a good citizen, it's not about citizenry, it's about power. Uh, and for, or anxiety or, you know, any number of things. And for, you know, some individuals who are very concerned about this, much of it has to do with power. Much of it has to do with, with anxiety. I think that the discourse over sort of volunteerism and the idea of, you know, because I think part of the other part of what you were saying, Kevin, makes me think about that age-old question of, you know, if World War II happened again, could we still do it? Uh, you know, and yeah, you know, yeah, uh, but... Oh no, we lost Josh again. Oh, right at the good part too. Yeah, <laughs> I really wanted to hear his answer on that. Okay. Yeah, but but I, to to fill in Josh, until hopefully Josh can join right us. I think there there's also very, like it's almost like a contrarian sentiment, right? Like the we've talked about the Jacobson case, and and I did it of some length earlier. But three years later, you get the founding of the American Anti-Vaccination Society or Anti-Vaccination League. Um, and it was these two, uh, Charles Higgins and John Pitcairn. And Higgins actually wrote a pamphlet, which I think play, it, it, it so echoed with a lot of the sentiments that we've been talking about today. Uh, the It was opposing vaccination of school kids in New York City. And it was called The Crime Against the School Child. Um, and his, his thesis, such as it was, uh, no valid law can be based on a falsehood. And, and then he went on to say that no, now all compulsory vaccination law is based on a triple falsehood, a trifecta, I guess we call it, um, that compulsory vaccination of a part or a whole of the population is necessary to prevent smallpox epidemics. He calls this a falsehood. I call it fact, personally. But, you know, um, what do years of historical evidence matter, right? Um <laughs> that nothing else prevents smallpox epidemics but general vaccination, that's another falsehood that, or, that he claims, and that vaccination is perfectly safe and harmless and never causes injury or death. And, and I think those are, now granted, the AMA actually went after him on numerous occasions saying, well, we never said that. Um, so, but I, you know, I, I think you, the same rhetoric is prevalent a lot today in these challenges to vaccination and, and mask mandates and so forth. That that it's all fake. It's not real. Hey, Josh, you're back. Yeah. So, Josh, are, are you ready to tell us whether we would have won World War Two? Yeah. <laughs> the suspense is. <laughs> I like to I like to have cliffhangers. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the point of, you know, could we do that again is, yeah, it's it's just the idea of we need a, a broad campaign against disinformation, uh, you know, particularly as it relates to this vaccine uh, and as it relates to what we're dealing with now. It, you know, largely once there is a sort of broad critical mass of acceptance of something as being for the public good, largely the public views it as a good and volunteers for it and does sort of go for it, right? Um, you know, you have a very large number of, you know, when it comes to World War II, much of it is voluntary. In World War I, a lot of it is forced. 
there's a difference. Uh, and it really depends on sort of historical circumstances. But I think in this case, the idea is that we need to continue a broad, you know, sort of campaign against, you know, quote unquote, fake news and disinformation and all those kinds of things. And that has historically helped uh, with these kinds of issues, you know, especially say, for example, in the case of the 1950s and a broad campaign to convince the public for, you know, polio vaccine or, or you know, and others. So uh, I'll, I'll make it quick because who knows how long I'll be. <laughs> I came across something, Kevin, if you don't mind me throwing this out there, that I, because I was thinking about talking about misinformation, um, there was accounts of in the Chicago Tribune uh, during the influenza pandemic about people just kind of kind of losing it, people doing some crazy things, people um, having standoffs with the police, uh, people, uh, there's a, a, a particularly heinous story of a man who slit the throats of his wife and children, um, and it was later deemed that he was not guilty by reason of insanity because the uh, influenza had essentially poisoned his mind and almost made him basically lose it and cause him to go nuts. Um, and there were multiple stories of that. And it reminded me of the story, I'm not sure if all of you heard of it recently, about a man who was a, um, he's a surfing instructor, I believe, out in California, who ended up as a result of, of kind of nose diving into the deep diving into these, these, these conspiracy theories about QAnon, um, ended up killing his own family. Um, so I don't know if necessarily if, if you know misinformation is, is is a new thing, right? I think all of us would agree on that, but it's the, the proliferation of it and how readily accessible it is to people that I think is, is what's causing us so much damage. Because I don't, I think I'm more of a of a pessimist than Josh. I I don't think that we'd be able to fight a war like World War II today because I don't I don't know if we'd be able to combat that level of um, of misinformation that's out there. Um, not, that, not that we wouldn't be capable of fighting it, we can. So I don't mean it from that that viewpoint. I just mean from the level of combating the. Um, so I agree with Josh on that point. But the idea of the misinformation, I don't know if we'd be able to get beyond that to get enough people in favor of it, because um, it would require probably a larger um, um, boots of the federal government, uh, literally and figuratively, to probably put that down. And I just don't know how that would go over in this age when everyone can record something on a cell phone and. Um, getting it out there. I just don't know if the country would find that same level of unity. And it's kind of a moot point, of course, right? Because I mean, so many variables are different, but um, there's a question there about, about even a draft, right? And you know, since the voting age was lowered to 18, we haven't had drafts since then. Um, so I, I don't uh, don't see that being reinstated any, anytime soon. Um, so anyway, that's my negative take on it. I'm negative Nelly, sorry. Yeah, the question just to re uh, be the, the um audience can't see all the questions in the chat. It's the way um, one of the participants gave in directions in the chat of, of how you could make it public for everybody to see, or you can make it just for the panel members to see. But there's a question about how would the audience act if the draft was reinstated? Would you serve? Would you move to Canada? And I think it's like we've been hitting upon, you know, that idea of sacrifice for country and what does it mean? And as Josh was going through and who gets to decide that, um, I'm going to try to go back just a little bit and I'm sorry to keep pushing the same, um, uh, theme here. Uh, I really, uh, one of the comments, I really appreciate all your opinions, but comparing a virus to world war two or attacks in New York city doesn't seem to go along. Having an enemy at your border or a terrorist attacking your city is not a good example of patriotism. I would fight for freedom for my country, and now people fight for freedom of choice. Um, so just to say that one more time, 
I really appreciate all your opinions, but comparing virus to World War II or attacks on New York City doesn't seem to go along. Having an enemy at your border or a terrorist attacking your city is not a good example for patriotism. I would fight for freedom for my country, and now people fight for freedom of choice. I appreciate the comment. I think I, as moderator, I shouldn't do this, but I'd like to start just because I think I kind of push this um, thought exercise. And that's, that's really what this is, is I just, I think it's important for us to consider historical threats that we faced and um, sacrifices that we've made to try to um, address those threats. And um, th these are not necessarily the same things. And I appreciate that comment to, to, to point that out of, of, of the differences. But I'm, I'm thinking from my own personal standpoint that, you know, um, I was very scared on 9-11 uh, being in downtown Chicago. Um, and, and I remember what it was like in the, in the days to follow as well. Um, but, you know, for 20 years, we've been putting our water bottles aside at the airport security and they take my hair gel if it's over four and a half ounces. And, you know, we, we've done a lot of sacrifices in the name of, you know, uh, fighting terrorism and trying to protect against terrorism. And at, you know, right now we're, we're losing every two days, the same number of people as that died on 9-11. It's not as dramatic, um, but as far as a threat to actual human life in the United States, there's really no comparison. There's way more people dying from this pandemic than from international terrorism over the last 20 years. But yet, as a society, we essentially spared no expense, trillions of dollars in two different wars, completely remaking Homeland Security, um, you know, allowing effectively phone calls to be listened into um, to try to prevent against uh, terrorism. We really sacrificed a lot of civil liberties. And I'm not saying that that was the wrong choice. I'm just saying that in, in a comparative situation, albeit differently, there seemingly was a, a much stronger governmental response. And I would suggest, and this is just to the panel members, and feel free for audience members to keep chiming in with the chat, that part of it is, is based on what the citizens are willing to do themselves. And, and I guess the sacrifices that we're willing to make, because I, I agree with the panel members that I think if the federal government pushed too hard, there, there would be, um, blowback from the citizenry, but I wonder if it was citizens and civil society asking more of our fellow citizens, our friends and our neighbors to do more in this uh, crisis that we're facing, um, whether that bottom-up approach would be better than the top-down approach from the national government. But have the panel members first, and, and then I'll go back to the chat. Well, that definitely, your last point definitely seems to be holding true because it, it, they said that even people are more likely to get vaccinated when they hear stories on TV of people who have been, who are skeptics themselves and then acquired, attained the virus and were very ill and are now kind of believers in it. So there's definitely, I think, um, some some truth to that, that they're more they're more likely to believe people around them than they are necessarily to believe uh, in, in government, whichever, whatever capacity that may be. But to address what the, what the um, student wrote, and I understand where, where they're coming from, um, but I think that what we're talking about is just the idea of crises in general. So that I think they, there is a comparison, a healthy comparison to be made there, because whether we're talking about, um, you know, smallpox uh, breakouts in, 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 you know, during the Revolutionary War, 
or um, you know, at the time of crisis during the Civil War. I mean, those are there are comparisons to be made in that we were under threat. The threat may be a, a different threat, but it's a threat nonetheless, and it required a response. So, um, you know, I, I think there is still a valid, a valid compare, a danger uh, that occurred after 9/11 too that required us to come together. So I think I think it is a valid at least um, connection. Um, yeah, I think that's, I'm, I'm starting to see myself training off thought though, so I'll turn it over to one of my colleagues. Not, we don't need to force a square peg into a round hole, but if Jim or Josh, if you have, uh, you know, a reaction to whether these are comparable um, threats and uh, the 9-11 comparison of, you know, uh, as as one of the respondents pointed out that that's very different than having a terrorist attack on a city versus having you know uh covid and 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 germs spread to to for people to die of a virus i i think that we need to when we make historical comparisons recognize that they are not literal and that they are figurative that history doesn't repeat itself that it might mirror itself and it's important to be aware of the gradations of what one can see in a mirror and that that can help us to understand where we are. You know, we, we struggle today in our 24 hour news cycle and zero, you know, of a zero sum game where we expect things to be literal. They're not always going to be that way in how we make these comparisons. History, if it's doing well, is helpful for getting us to understand where we are. It's not going to literally tell us what to do, but it can inform us in order to understand what's at stake. Yeah, and I would just add that um, actually the comment that one of the audience posted, 9-11 was broadcast for everyone to see. COVID is occurring slowly, often in private. And I think the fact that we don't see this dramatic sort of thing. It's it's sort of a creeping, and honestly, in ways, it, especially in isolation, it was when you were describing your reactions to 9-11, Kevin, I was thinking that, you know, the parallel was COVID and, and the lockdown was kind of like an extended 9-11. You know, we were all on edge as to what's going to, is this going to get better? And when is it going to get worse first? What's coming next? <laughs> Uh, so I think, yeah. you know, and, and, and as Professor Fulton pointed out, yeah, I, absolutely. It's they're they're never exact parallels. Um, you know, it's it's always a sort of comparison. And, and I think it fits best if we're not looking at, you know, well, this is war, this is disease. But they both fit under the umbrella of natural or national crisis. Both of these are national crises. And, and I think that is the point that we are making with this panel discussion. One quick difference, um, at, there's many, and I appreciate, you know, the, the framework that, that each of you laid out, but I don't, we wouldn't think of attacking terrorism with 50 separate state policies. I, I think we might agree upon that. And yet, it, we, in, in fact, we knew that one of the best ways, and, and, and I found John Ashcraft quotes about how important it was, he was, he was the attorney general under Bush, how important it was to have international partners that you really needed 
to fight terrorism, not just as a country, but as uh, a coalition of countries to have a, a unified you know, sharing of information and intelligence on terrorists. And um, I think that often gets lost in this discussion, too, that, you know, we are fighting in the United States kind of 50 separate or even more with city and uh, local government differences, um, a very patchwork approach to, to COVID. And um, we are struggling to get the vaccination rate up to 70 percent. But yet, even if we do, there's so many other countries or parts of the world that um, have very low vaccination rates. And so the potential for the virus to mutate um, and, and, and prolong, be prolonged is, is still a strong possibility without this international cooperation. And, and um, so anyway, I just thought that was uh, one way of pointing out a big difference is, is that with federalism, we would never think of approaching fighting terrorism with um, a 50 state approach, whereas we seem seem that's a, fair, that's a fair point. Sorry, Kevin, I think it's a fair point. The only thing I was I was just thinking of looking at one of the comments on here and what we were talking about earlier. Somebody said there are videos on the app TikTok of people getting vaccinated and made it seem like they're magnets that stick to their arm. Um, you know, we know about the 9-11 conspiracy videos that came out afterwards. There was kind of these rudimentary videos that were seen by some. They maybe went kind of viral of their day, but this was again pre Facebook pre-Instagram, pre-all these things, I wonder if this were to happen now, if it would be the same. Um, you know, but, but again, that we're in these different pockets and these different bubbles now. And I, I just, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm being such a negative Nelly today, but um, I just do wonder if, if, our, if we would still be as coherent coming together the way that we are, or whether we would be you know, going down these rabbit holes of, of conspiracy theories um, that people are going on down now, and even if there was a, 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 a terrorist attack, because it would be immediate. There'd be things on YouTube immediately. You know, there'd be things all over Instagram or TikTok or whatever, and, and so many people that would believe those things. I think we, as in academia, I mean, I think hopefully we're, we're you know, able to discern between these things, but I think so many people are just, don't take the time or um, maybe don't don't care to or whatever, whatever the reasoning may be. Um, I just think there's a big difference between even 20, you know, 20 years ago and today, as far as that's concerned. That's a really great point, Mary. And I, I don't know if it's even, I think there's just like a problem with credibility and, and being in certain senses, being overly willing to allow credibility to difference. You know, like long before I, I became an academic, I remember growing up and like, I would come home and you know share some rumor with my parents that I had heard on the schoolyard and my mother would always say think of the source you know and, and I think people don't really <laughs> consider like okay is TikTok really vetted <laughs> you know um is is what so you know maybe crazy uncle Jimmy is is called that for a reason and so when he posts something in Facebook we should maybe vet it first um and, and before we go there, no, that's not what my family refers to me as. Anyhow, um, but I think there is like this. I think what I think we're in a growing stage with a lot of these these social media of like getting to a point where it's more vetted and where we do consider the source. And I think that is, in all seriousness, I've, I've thought about this a lot. And I think that as a society, as time progresses, my hope actually is that we do consider the source. Like you might, you know, 
I don't go to YouTube for hard news. I go to it for entertainment. And, but I mean that, you know, it's and, and that we'll start to look at these things as the realms that they belong in. You know, this is entertainment. This is information and so forth. But I think it's proliferated so rapidly that it's it's kind of blurred a lot of those lines. And also there are people certainly with conscious intent who are working to blur some of those lines. Uh, for for various reasons. Yeah. Uh, Professor Mike Way just pointed out about the library's module on evaluating news um, and um, highly recommend that. And um, thanks for pointing that out, Mike, because you're right, Jim, the importance of of, uh, information literacy and uh, for us, for all citizens is really, really key. Getting down to about the final five minutes, I wanted to uh, provide each panel member an opportunity to, you know, maybe something that they'd like to either end with or something that they didn't get to earlier, or maybe a question for another panel member, anything. Um, Just kind of give you an opportunity uh, for the final five minutes. I'm so bad at this. I at the end. I'm so bad at trying to bring this full circle. <laughs> I want. I want to end on a, on a positive note, though. Um, and I, I, I do think that that even though we have people that are on on the fringes here and there, I do still believe that in the majority of Americans, those numbers don't lie. And I do still think there are plenty of people who um, do believe in science um, and are willing to go along with it, and parents who want their kids to be safe in schools. Um, so I, I, I do want to let, like, I don't want to be so negative all the time. I feel like I've been very negative lately, so I apologize. But uh, um, I think we're going to be okay. I think it's just going to take just, this is just going to be a long process to work through. I thought that it kept coming to mind as I looked at these different episodes in our past was that that it seems that the consensus has been and hopefully we'll come back to that the good of the many outweighs the good of the few or the one that that voluntarily we should be willing to give up some of our personal freedom pleasure not under compulsion but for the benefit of our whole community to keep a community To, to build on what uh, Mary and Jim uh, are saying, you know, the thing I circle back to is uh, the other day there was a, a congressman who I believe said that vaccine mandates or tweeted out that vaccine mandates are un-American, right? That it is un-American to, to mandate for a vaccine. And one of the good things about history is that we can, of course, bring context to a situation. And certainly from the days of Jacobson versus Massachusetts, if not before, to General Washington and his orders of inoculation of troops during the American Revolution, to the construction of the immigration system that exists today, no, there is a broad-based general acceptance of the use of vaccines as participating within the American public sphere, that it isn't all of a sudden un-American 
And it does beg the question then and a wider discussion about the nature of American identity and about, you know, how those individuals frame civic identity and what it means to be American. Very well stated. And um, I, um, I just, I think I'm really sticking to my 9-11 comparisons and I, I would uh, just wish that we could harness that same spirit of unity and purpose. And I think one of the um, audience members mentioned the images of that day and they were horrific. Um, but it makes me think of the full ICU beds. Um, it makes me think of today where we've, there's, there was a veteran that, in, a, in a video that was viral of, uh, I think he served two du duties uh, in Afghanistan and he effectively died from a very treatable um, situation, but there wasn't an ICU bed in Texas that he had access to. Um, I think he had kidney stones or something like that. Um, and, and, you know, those, those deaths are, are just as tragic to the family members as, as the people who, um, who were killed on 9-11. I mean, uh, when you lose a loved one, it's, it's the, the loss is, is, is a loss and how they died um, in, in some ways, you know, comparing them doesn't really make a difference to, to the family members who, who lost a loved one. Um, so I remember after 9-11, those uh, bumper stickers, these colors don't run and, and all that kind of patriotism and willingness for people to come together to try to keep America safe. And I, and I, I appreciate the panel members today. I appreciate the audience members coming together to try to um, discuss uh, key topics like this. But I also hope that we can um, help one another, protect one another and try to uh, come together as a country to try to solve these big threats that we face. Um, thanks to all of my panel members volunteering their time at the beginning of the semester, not easy. Thanks to Darren, um, Josh, Mary, and Jim, appreciate you. Um, every semester you've uh, always volunteered for one of our democracy commitment events and um, really appreciative of that. So thank you all. Thank you, Kevin. Josh had it right on there. United around you being a good host. <laughs> well said, Josh. Thanks to all the audience members for coming today. I appreciate that. And for Professor Mike Wade and others who uh, uh, told their students about our event and, and had them attend. Thank you all. <laughs>